Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Girl Show. We will be here until 5 o'clock today, of course, like every other Saturday. Um, again, my intro says 7 o'clock because that was the old time we used to do on Wednesdays, and I have to change that. In any case, uh, welcome back. I hope everyone's having a wonderful weekend. I hope you had a great Friday and continuing on to uh, tomorrow. Uh, today we're going to have... Um, a guest, uh, Professor uh, Ellen Gray at uh, Dickinson College, who wrote a book on uh, Faldu music, uh, the Portuguese uh, Faldu, of course, Faldu Resounding, Effective Politics and Urban Life. Um, as our, uh, some of our listeners know, I've played Faldu music here before um, briefly, so we'll do, uh, for the first half of the show, from 3 to 4, we're going to interview Professor Gray, and then from 4 to 5, we'll be playing some Faldu music, and if anyone has any other requests, we can play those as well. But uh, joining us now, um, Professor Gray should be with us. Professor Gray, can you hear me? Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. All right. I just want to say thank you again for joining us. Um, uh, So could you tell our listeners a little bit uh, about kind of who you are and uh, what you do and kind of brief brief, uh, bio about yourself? Sure. Um, So I'm an ethnomusicologist and an anthropologist of music and sound. And so this means that I research, teach, and I write about the relationship of music um, to sort of wide, the wider social world into social processes. And right now I teach at Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Wonderful. And uh, so again, so we mentioned we're going to discuss uh, the Faldu uh, book. Uh, could you get, tell us a, a little bit about, uh, in general, what Faldu is and um, how you learned about it. Sure, yeah. You mean, so how I, how I discovered it to begin with? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so the Fado I write about is um, the Fado from Lisbon, so Fado de Lisboa, um, and that's different from Fado uh, from a city to the north of Lisbon, Fado de Coimbra, so from the city of Coimbra. And so Lisbon Fado emerged um, most likely in the early... 19th century, and it's a form of sung poetry that's improvised and passed down through primarily an oral tradition and accompanied by um, the Portuguese guitar, so this absolutely gorgeous uh, steel string instrument characteristic of Portugal, and um, also an acoustic guitar, sometimes a bass guitar. And it's sung all over Lisbon in multiple places, and also in Massachusetts and in Newark and in many other places around the world. Absolutely. I know uh, here in Mass uh, and also in um, uh, Rhode Island, we have several restaurants that every, uh, I don't know if it's every Friday or every Monday, some of these restaurants do uh, follow the music, and they have uh, these different uh, fadish uh you know, uh, the one I'm thinking about, we have a restaurant here in Rhode Island, uh, Udinij and. Uh, Dinesh Paiva, who is uh, from uh, the Azores, I believe, and he does uh, follow the music there uh, once a week, too. So it's always nice to see those old traditions still alive and well in today's day. Yeah, I would absolutely love to hear some of that Fadu in Rhode Island. Yeah, that's fantastic. Absolutely. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what motivated you to, to write this book? And uh, um, Yeah, so let's start with that. What motivated you to write this book in general? So the, primarily just the sheer gut-wrenching beauty of the, of the singing. And um, when I first started out, I was very curious about it, but this was back in the very late 1990s, and I couldn't find really anything. I found very little in English about Fado. This was when I was in graduate school in North Carolina. And the information I did find was implying that Fado was sort of dying out in Portugal. So I found a way to get myself over there, and I found out pretty quickly that people had very strong feelings about Fado at that time. So Fado definitely wasn't dying out, but a lot of people didn't like it, um, and a lot of people loved it. So I was really interested in how polarized a lot of the population was that I spoke to in Lisbon at that time. And were you able to find out why it became polarized like that? Yeah, I mean, so I write about this a lot in the book, and it turns out to be something that's um, super nuanced and complicated, But and it's something that's still sort of argued about very passionately today, this topic of to, the, what, to what extent was 
the music of Fado or the style of Fado appropriated by um, Antonio Salazar's uh, dictatorship. So that dictatorship in Portugal lasted for almost 50 years, um, ended in um, the 1970s. But by the time I arrived on the scene in the late 1990s, still a lot of the older folks that were singing um, or not singing had um, strong associations one way or another. And what I discovered, because I did a lot of research in sort of very small neighborhood bars, some of these very working class places, was that there was a whole sort of underground movement um, also during the later years of the regime where people were singing um, sort of revolutionary fables behind closed doors, sometimes with somebody on the lookout um, for the secret police, for the PID outside, outside of the door of the place. And so, you know, it has all the, the state, the dictatorship did try to sort of marshal the powerful force of Fado for its own ends. They did try, they did try, and certainly um, they, they censored Fado, and that had a really big effect on the kind of lyrics um, that were produced and written and heard a lot at that time, and they exerted an awful lot of control. So there was that relationship, but at the same time, there were so many different kinds of activities going on around Fado, and certainly not all of them at all had um, were you know on the side of the regime. Some of them were absolutely um, fighting against it. Interesting. And uh, I know before they used to have these uh, Fado houses. Does, does that still exist in in Portugal? Absolutely. So Casas de Fado, um, and again, that's something that's also you know Fado is in this huge. Um, sort of experiencing a heyday over in Portugal, and that's fueled by many, many factors, including um, a sort of massive uptake in tourism. But there, um, there's a, there are a wide variety of these kinds of fado venues in Lisbon, and um, some the sort of professional casas de fado that have a fixed group of singers that sing every night, that um, started actually during the earlier years of the dictatorship um, back in the 20th century as a way to professionalize and sort of keep Fado under reign. But today um, they're, they're thriving. There are a number, number of really wonderful places where you can hear um, highly professional Fado um, and have a really nice meal at the same time. Some of them are quite pricey. But then there are lots of places where they call it Fado Amador or Fado Vadiu, where um, People gather to listen and to singers um, singing for singing for the fun of it, and sometimes those sessions can go on for five hours or something. And that's you know people may be attending, maybe just drinking a beer or having a glass of wine, and um, not sitting down for formal dinner with white tablecloths. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we're in studio with Professor Ellen Gray from Dickinson College discussing her book, Faldu Resounding, Effective Politics and Urban Life. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back uh, with Professor Gray. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul So Girl Show. We will be here until 5 o'clock, uh, 5 o'clock of course, like we always are. Uh, we're just talking with Professor Ellen Gray from Dickinson College discussing her book, uh, Faldu Resounding, Effective Politics and Urban Life. Uh, Prof- Professor Gray, could you tell us about uh, a little bit about what this process was like writing this book in, in terms of um, kind of what your uh, your methodology was, uh, interviews or kind of how you went about writing it in general? Yeah, so this book was a great pleasure to write. It was also really tricky and difficult to write, and it was a project, um, sort of a labor of love um, that went on for many, many years, a little bit over a decade. Uh, so, I, you know, I started going to Lisbon in the late 1990s. I moved there um, in the early 2000s and lived there for two years. And then I kept on returning um, for, you know, sometimes twice a year, sometimes once a year for an extended period of time, usually during the summers or during January, all the way through, you know, 2011, 2012. Uh, So the methodology I used... um, was you know some classical I used some classical anthropological and ethnomusicological methodologies. So one of the things I did we like to call it sort of deep hanging out, where um, one spends a lot of time with the community members um, which one is trying to learn from. So you know I spent an awful lot of time um, listening to Fado in some of these very small neighborhood bars, and sometimes I was there all weekend. Um, and then many days and evenings during the week, 
um, I went all over the city, and I also followed fadishtas around because some of these fadishtas will play and sing one gig um, in one place, and then they'll all get in a car and they'll go somewhere else to the outskirts of the city, and then they'll go somewhere else in a, on one Saturday night. And those nights were very long, and so you know they would sometimes end um, at eight o'clock in the morning um, with people feeding me feeding me breakfast. So I lived that kind of fadishta life in the sense that a fadishta is a fado singer in the sense that there's sort of an alternate time temporality or time scale. By the time one would wake up, the banks would be closed oftentimes, right? So you're living in a, on a schedule that's very different from um, a lot of folks. Um, I also tried, it was very important for me to try to figure out how people learned how to sing. So there's a saying in the fado world that one doesn't ever learn how to sing fado, but rather one is born with fado in the soul, or dentro da alma, in the soul. And I saw all around me that little kids were singing, and um, also I saw an older woman uh, who I met early on in my research who had recently been through a divorce, and only after that divorce did she start to sing in public. And I saw her improving and learning every single week that I heard her sing in that little in that little tashko or that little bar. And so I was really interested in how people learn, and so people would kept telling me, "No, you never, people don't take lessons. They don't, you know, they're just born knowing how to do this, and they sing what's in their soul." But I was, I started tracking how people learn. I started spending time with um, at a community center in the, on the outskirts of the city where all the windows were broken, um, it wasn't a very wealthy neighborhood at all, uh, and people would gather there in the evenings once a week, and kids would come in for coaching sessions for Fadu, and I learned a lot in that way. Um, I also started to sing myself. I've, I tried in many different ways. There, at that time, Fado lessons were becoming institutionalized at the Fado Museum, so that was interesting because, and there was a lot of suspicion around that. The Fado singers thought that was a strange thing that there would be these lessons that you would pay for to go study Fado, but I tried that to see what that was all about. And then I also just, I, I spent lots of time with Fadistas and I learned Fados, I developed a repertoire, and I started singing in some places just to see, I wanted to know what I was doing wrong because once I could get people to take me seriously enough to critique me, I could start to understand what was important to them and what mattered in terms of what sounded good, how to articulate the words well, how to sing with feeling, how photo structures work. And photos really, some people might say it's musically simple, and people did tell me that, but it's actually musically incredibly complicated. And so I learned by doing, and I also talked and listened. I really learned by listening. I listened to, I interviewed so many people. So people, um, you know, who had had very well-received careers in their day, who were at the end of their lives. And I interviewed people who were just starting out. I interviewed foreigners who were singing fado. Um, I interviewed world music stars. And I interviewed just normal listeners and people who love who love fado and the guitaristas and the um, the viola players, so the guitar players, um, all the musicians um, in that musical world. Absolutely. In your time there, were you, did you ever meet uh, Amalia Rodriguez? Well, Amalia died in 1999, and so that's really sort of a, um, a very difficult thing, is my research really started just as her life had ended, and I was able to visit her very first burial site, which was a profoundly moving experience in the Lisbon Cemetery of Prazerish, um, and in near the neighborhood of Campo do Rica in Lisbon. And that was there. I'll never forget that. And there's a picture of that in my in my book. There were flowers. I mean, it was this beautiful sunlight, and there were flowers everywhere. Um, adorning her tomb, and there were so many that they were covering all these other tombs. And then people had written and drawn things and sent things from all over the world. There were little statues of the Eiffel Tower from France, and there were, you know, there was there was all of this outpouring of love for for her voice and for her. And so that was something that moved me very deeply. And um, sort of tracking the after effects or the af- what I call the afterlife of Amalia's presence and her voice and her style as it's continued um, since her death, became something very important um, to my research. Absolutely. And in, 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 in interviewing uh, these Fadishas, did you learn if it was something that had uh, 
kind of continue on generation through generation with their families in terms of them singing? Or was it some people just uh, maybe in your case learned just out of the blue? Did you see uh, both sides of that or was it typically one or the other? Yeah, it's such a great question to me because I think, you know, learning is really, father learning and pedagogy is something that's very much been evolving. Um, and I, one of my colleagues in Portugal, she's written, she, she wrote a doctoral dissertation on how in some places in Lisbon, uh, in some cases, this is really passed down through family lineages. And certainly you see that in the case of the really famous fado singer from Portugal, Camané. Um, so his family is very much involved in singing fado. Um, and you, do, you can sometimes trace these lineages, um, and also with uh, guitar uh, players. Um, but in other, time, in other cases, um, people who are really interested in singing, um, even in the old days, so even, um, let's say, in the early 20th century, mid-20th century, uh, they would start to sing in maybe lower-stakes situations. And so they, that might have been for parties on the street or something in the summer, um, maybe if their parents let them in these um, in some smaller tashkas. But for women, that was always a very tricky thing because of associations with prostitution, even if that wasn't really happening. Fado has that older history of being associated with um, sort of undesirable um, social situations for some people. But in any case, they would find, oftentimes these younger people would find, um, for example, a, a madrinha if it was a girl, um, padrinho if it was a boy, um, sort of a father or mother figure in the world of Fadu who would take them under their wings and help them show, show them how to do this and show them the ropes. So they would get a lot of um, unofficial training in the Fado houses themselves and in these other ca- kinds of venues where Fado was played and heard. People spoke to me about learning by listening to voices on the radio. So a lot of people, older people, talked to me about that. And nowadays I have, you know, I have another colleague um, based in Newark, Kimberly Dacosta-Holton, who's written a really nice piece about how some folks are learning, younger people in the U.S. now are learning how to sing Fado from YouTube. So, you know, I think there's a very wide spectrum. Certainly recordings um, currently play a big role in terms of how a lot of younger people learn and also older people. They listen to multiple variations of the same um, fadu. um, But there's also a lot of critique within the fadu world about that method of learning uh, because um, some people worry that it fosters imitation rather than originality. That's a fair point. Uh, I know... Uh, in terms of in- interest, a wide range. I mean, I really see that because you know, I w- turning twenty five in March, and I see you know, I, I gained an interest in Fadu, Zafiu, uh, and Jigahada more of more Jigahada and Zafiu because you know, coming from uh, the Azores, those are kind of like the two biggest. Um, uh, my family come from the Azores; those are kind of like the big, the two biggest uh, genres, if you will, that. Uh, that are played there. But I mean, so in terms of uh, writing this book, were there anything um, specific that you learned or things that you found interesting that maybe you didn't think of initially that you were going to find out? Yeah, you know, I learned so much and I'm still learning. I mean, I certainly learned a lot about the importance of listening and how to listen to different um, different viewpoints. And, you know, fadishtas have a saying that a fadishta is not one who knows how to sing well or deliver the words of the poetry well. Not only that, but also a fadishta is someone who knows how to listen well. So I think um, sort of immersing myself in a genre in which listening, it takes such heightened importance um, and a very certain kind of listening. That was, I I learned so much about listening and also silence. Um, Silence is something else that has um, manifested in so many different ways as a really important value to follow in, in terms of improvising um, in the middle of a silence or uh, audience members having to be very silent, but that silence being charged with a lot of, a lot of feeling. Um, I also met, I was just so privileged to meet some incredibly inspirational people and and fado and fad singers. One of those people was um, Jose Manuel Zorio, who passed away in 2011. And he was an extraordinary fado improviser, a fado researcher. He also um, was an AIDS activist, and he also died, unfortunately, of, of AIDS. Um, but he sang fados in Lisbon that were really socially, you know, he was, he was interested in using his fados that he sang. He collaborated with wonderful poets. He was interested in using those fathers to change 
the status quo in terms of certain things that were happening um, in society that were, you know, not working so well. And so he was, you know, I, I learned a lot from listening to him, and I learned a lot about the, what's possible in a genre like Fado, which some people may characterize from the outside as being stereotyp- stereotypically sad or just about saudade or a bittersweet longing. But actually, fados run the whole gamut of human emotions, and to encounter a genre that's that rich and has so much possibility—I mean, that was that was just such a privilege. Absolutely, already, folks. We're in, we're uh, interviewing uh, Professor Ellen Gray uh, from Dickinson College, discussing her book uh, "Fado Resounding: Effective Politics and Urban Life." We're going to take another quick break. We'll come back. We have a few more questions to get through, and. Uh, and then we'll, from 4 to 5, we'll play some Fado music, as well as uh, if anyone has requests, they can email us in. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, folks. Welcome back to the Paul Sargirl Show. We will be here until 5 o'clock today. Uh, we're talking with Professor Ellen Gray from Dickinson College, discussing her book, uh, Fado Resounding, Effective Politics and Urban Life. Uh, Professor, bef- uh, you mentioned that... Um, the Fadu from Coimbra is uh, different from the Fadu from Lisbon. Could you co- tell us a little bit about uh, how are they different? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, historically, the Fadu from, from Coimbra um, was, and it still is, it's very much associated with the University of Coimbra and the university students, mostly male students from the University of Coimbra. So it's a tradition that's marked by having... Um, almost exclusively, at least traditionally, male singers and male instrumentalists. Lisbon Fado is sung by both women and men, even though traditionally and historically almost all of the instrumentalists in Lisbon Fado are male. And so on the, so we have that gender distinction that, that mostly Coimbra Fado is sung by men. Um, if people characterize it um, as some as folks in Lisbon who are more interested in Lisbon Fado characterize the Coimbra Fado as being more operatic sounding or having a different kind of ornamentational or ornamentation style. Um, also, um, there are a lot of um, ballad-type uh, fado lyrics from the Coimbra Fado, some of them sort of love songs that a male university student might sing uh, to, um, you know, sing to his beloved outside at night. And there's also a different technique of Drumming the guitarra, the, also the guitarra, the Portuguese guitar is also different. It has a larger resonating chamber, um, and it's also one of the other. There are a number, a number of differences, but another difference is that, and I think it's very beautiful. On the very top of the uh, guitarra, in the part of the instrument called the scroll, there is oftentimes you'll see a teardrop, uh, so an icon of a tear. Um, on the guitar itself. And sometimes, what's very interesting, is sometimes the guitar players in Lisbon prefer to use the Coimbra guitars um, for certain fados and certain performances because they think it adds a special kind of depth uh, to the fado. I know when I had the privilege of interviewing Fons Rocha, who was one of Amalia Rodriguez's accompanists, and worked with her quite frequently. He he was talking about one of the albums that they recorded, and he very, um, you know, purposefully chose a Coimbra g- a guitar to give an extra added depth to the sound. So, um, those are some of the differences. Um, there are sometimes in the context of listening to Lisbon Fado in a you know a club or a, a bar or something in Lisbon, a singer will come out and sing a Coimbra Fado, and everybody's fine with that. <laughs> Interesting. Um, in your own opinion, why why is Fado special? How does it differ from any other uh, genre of music, if you will? Yeah, so um, all genres of music are special, right? Um, but uh, one of the things I think that is uh, so fascinating to me about Fado, and I'm still learning about it and still trying to wrap my head around it, is this subgenre of Fado which um, some people call fado tradicional, or in English that would be um, traditional fado. And that's, you know, I know, you know, the man I mentioned, Jose Manuel Zorio, was very interested in collecting um, many, many examples of these from older people before they died. Um, Traditional fado is so interesting because how that works is, there are hundreds of what musicians call the musical bases, and these are not um, notated in musical scores. They're passed down through oral tradition, 
And um, on top of those musical bases, so you could say one would be a Fado Victoria, another a Fado da Shorish, another um, Fado Alexandrino. Um, they go on and on. Um, Fado Menor do Porto, Fado Menor, Fado Corrido, um, any of these. Um, they have characteristic harmonic patterns that no matter who plays them, those harmonic patterns are going to stay the same. They have characteristic rhythmic um, and metrical elements. But then... The melodic part is very much improvised by the individual fadista, and um, the musicians, the instrumentalists, interact with in an improvisatory way with the singer, with the fadista. They improvise, but they oftentimes um, use, um, for example, in any given fado menor or a minor fado, they'll use specific kinds of um, musical figures or little motifs for them. But What's interesting about these musical structures is any one of them can accommodate an infinite number of lyrics or poems. And so it's, so on the one hand, you have these, these hundreds of musical bases, and then you have the infinity of poetic you know, poems that can um, um, accompany them. And I think that's, just, that's really fascinating in thinking about how the genre continues to evolve. There's just so much room there for development, improvisation, and for people to use the genre as a way to make meaning of their lives in a changing world. Absolutely. And, and the way Father was uh, sang or played, has that changed throughout the years, or has it pretty much stayed the same? No, it's really changed a lot. And, you know, um, it's really funny. When I first tried to learn how to sing, I was listening to really old archival recordings from the 1920s, which I happened to have that uh, another scholar had given me. Um, and so I was listening to this really old recording of um, this fable called Persigisau, or The Pursuit, uh, where in the story with that one is, um, you know, there's this man pursuing a woman, and she keeps on saying, no, you know, I'm upholding the honor of my marriage. I'm not interested in you at all. I'm going to tear up all your letters. You know, this is something Amalia sang. And if you go back and you listen to one of the early recordings of that, you know, from the 1920s, you hear this song very straight, and so you don't have as much ornamentations in the voice, and the meter is much more straightforward. By the time Amalia comes around, you know, by the time you get to the 1950s um, and the 1960s, Amalia is doing all these really wonderful extensions of, um, she'll expand the meter, uh, and she'll hold out in music, we call them rubati or rubato. Uh, so that's an Italian term to mean that the meter or the is the note is actually expanded in time. So she would draw out these phrases and she would keep everyone in suspense on the edge of their chair, you know, full of emotion, waiting for her to resolve this note. And then she also did something, um, and Fadish just called these voltinish. Uh, so she had voltinish in her garganta or in her throat, right? So she would sing. Those are called those are vocal ornaments, and so she would do all these really interesting kinds of ornamentations and improvisations. And so that's a really big change that happened, um, you know, around the time of Amalia, and, and Amalia had a lot to do with that change. And um, people have been sort of following those footsteps uh, ever since. I think. Absolutely, and if you could, um, you know. It, were there any uh, unique conversations you had or something that really gave you a different perspective or maybe opened um, your knowledge of Faldu differently when the, the time you spent in Portugal? Well, there was, I mean, there were so many because I really started um, as, a, as a beginner, right? So I learned, I learned everything from scratch. Um, so all of those conversations were... Um, really valuable, and I think you know Jose Manuel Osorio, who I spoke about before. He he really introduced me to a totally different way of thinking about fado, a kind of activist fado. And some of the, you know, some of the older people in their 80s and even in their 90s, who I had the pleasure of spending time with, um, you know, they really taught me a lot about the joy. Um, of living a life that's so musically engaged, even if they were not, they're not professional musicians, they're not professional singers, but their entire lives revolved around performing and learning more and singing this um, incredible art form. Absolutely. I know there was a time, um, I can't remember how long ago it was now, but at the, the restaurant I was talking about in Rhode Island, we actually had a gentleman by the name of uh, Vito Duarte Massiniero, who was uh, the grandson of, obviously, Alfredo, Marcinero, uh, who came down to Rhode Island, that was his first time in the United States, and he performed the uh, Faldu. But it was interesting because he would do a traditional one, and then 
kind of maybe like the last uh, verse or so was all improv, which is uh, it was remarkable. But he says, you know, he he likes to continue the. Uh, um, uh, you know, the the idea that, you know, his grandfather sings, he wants to continue on that tradition from his family, but it was remarkable to see um, to, to see the grandson uh, continuing on what his uh, family has done, but it was, uh, it's pretty remarkable. I think they have a museum there, too, of Alfredo uh, Marciniero in, in Portugal, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I know he has a fair representation, you know, in the Museu do Fado, or in the, in the Fado Museum in Alfama, but he's, I, they, you know, that's a great regret that I um, am too young to have ever been able to hear Alfredo Mercenario sing live. Yeah, live. But there's, believe it, there's tons on uh, on YouTube. <laughs> like, it's re- it's remarkable that uh, um, people are still finding these clips and putting it online, so everyone can yeah. enjoy these days. You know, so it's uh, it's a great uh, resource. Um, if you could. Uh, how popular is Faldu internationally? That is, is there a way to say, you know, uh, you know, it's been heard in almost, you know, so many uh, countries or whatnot? Yeah, and that's something I'm actually um, thinking and doing more research on now. So um, just these different waves of internationalization of Faldu. And, uh, you know, I, don't, I couldn't say um, it's, you know, known in this place and not known in this place because right now, of course, the way we're consuming and listening to music is so, um, you know, we have listeners all over the world through um, platforms like Spotify, etc. But um, the early, especially in the 20th century, those waves of internationalism, um, you know, you could argue that, um, you know, with the advent of sound recording is when um, the internationalization of a lot of different genres of music started, especially in the early um, you know, early 20th century. Amalia also did an awful lot uh, to internationalize the genre. Um, so she traveled. You know, she she traveled. She had a lot of success in Japan, and um, I've been thinking a lot lately about uh, the role of Fado in Japan and the sort of love that a lot of Japanese have for Fado and also for learning how to play the Portuguese guitar and how to sing Fado. Um, but Fado, uh, you know, it's certainly in all the most of the places that the Portuguese have been and the Portuguese diasporic communities. But it's moved further than that, and I think you know. It's sp- Especially one of you know one of those um, early waves certainly was um, in the mid 20th century with Amalia, uh, the career of Amalia Rodriguez. But then there was another wave in the 1990s um, with folks like Mizia, a Portuguese fado singer, um, who was one of the very first to have a career built on the back of an emerging category for music marketing in the you know that came out of really. Um, the music industry in Britain, which was world world music, some of you you know, know that term world music, um, that you know in the 1980s, 1990s, that really started to take off. Um, and then on the backs of that, folks like Marisa, um, you know, she's really an Anamora, um, Cristina Branco, etc. They've done really a lot to also internationalize Fado, but un- it's uneven. The inter- internationalization of Fado is highly uneven. You know, and some of the places in which Fado remains popular today are some of the same places where Amalia um, forged, uh, you know, different audiences through her recordings um, and through her public appearances. And so that's also really, really interesting. Absolutely. Do you have a, uh, a favorite Fadishta or maybe a favorite Fadu song? And maybe if you could explain a little bit about maybe why that's your favorite person or uh, song? I have so many that I can't really um, isolate it to one person. Um, I can say in terms of a Fadu, one of my favorite forms of traditional fado is a fado victoria. And the fado victoria uh, is a fado that's often used for very majestic or serious or grave um, lyrics. So it's, it's, it's quite moving. And one of the things that fado victoria has structurally, I discovered this when I was studying it, and I was really interested in this, is that um, you know, close to the beginning, the the guitarista and the um, guitar guitar player, viola player, often they they always have this descending harmonic pattern, um, uh, which goes goes down, you know, by four four steps. And in music, we call that a descending tetrachord. And what's so interesting about that is that even going back to the 1700s in Western Europe in the Baroque period, that same musical figure. 
um, was something to use to signal to listeners that something very sad was happening, that this was a lament or this was something really grave or very, very sad or very, very heartbreaking. So the Father Victoria also has that. You know, it has that stylized form of lamentation built into the structure of its music. And some of the lyrics that have been associated with Father Victoria include Igreja de Santo Estevão, so that's a famous, beautiful old church in the neighborhood of Alfama, for example. And of course, um, by Amalia, um, uh, written by. Um, so, um, wait, what I'm thinking about here is the Father Povo Kalavish Nuriu. So, of course, that was the really big um, Father, Father Victoria. Uh, Father Victoria is authored by uh, Joaquin Campos. Um, and there have been many other really wonderful renditions with different with different lyrics. And one of my famous father singers of the past, I mean, not, not one of my most famous, one of my most preferred father singers of the past is Maria Teresa de Noronha. And I really um, love, she sings various Fado de Orish, that's another father of the hours, another really beautiful uh, traditional fado. Um, and she just has this, you know, very regal and uh, sort of austere, but uh, very pure sound, and I I really enjoy listening listening to her voice. Absolutely, already, folks. We're in studio with Professor Ellen Gray discussing her book, Fado Resounding: Effective Politics in Urban Life. We're going to take a, a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll be, we'll start to wrap up our interview and uh, and and, and, and uh, essentially get into the the Fado music that we'll do for the second half. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, folks. Welcome back to the Paul Girl Show. We will be here until five o'clock this afternoon. Of course, uh, we are talking with uh, Professor Ellen Gray about her book, Fado Resounding: Effective Politics in Urban Life. Uh, professor, is there um, anything maybe we didn't? Uh, mention that you want that you thought would be uh, uh, useful information for our listeners uh, regarding Faldo music. Um, I mean, one other, I think one thing that I didn't mention, you know, I talked a little bit about Faldo traditional or traditional Faldo, and another really um, important subgenre in Faldo is Faldo cansao or Faldo song, and that um, emerged really in the late 1800s, early. Um, 19, you know, early 20th century in relationship to musicals or in Portuguese, revistas. And so those are those are very different and those are very enjoyable. They're very different from the traditional fados which have a structure where the same musical material repeats in every verse. In these, uh, in, in a fado cansal, um, that usually goes, you know, straight through. In musical terms, it's called through composed. And um, the lyrics and the music travel together, side batoons and uh, the lyrics travel side by side, so they usually don't take on many, you know, different lyrics, and that's so that's something. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just another another piece of this to point to the complexity of the genre. Absolutely, and uh, in terms of current projects, are you working on anything current? Uh, maybe our listeners would probably be interested in learning more about. Yeah, so I'm working on a few different projects. Um, and one I, I think I mentioned already has to do with the internationalization of Fado. Um, in the mid-20th century. But the other thing that's really caught my attention, and I've been spending a lot of energy thinking about it these days, um, and for folks who've been in Lisbon and in Portugal recently, you may have noticed that there's just really a tremendous uptick um, of mass tourism in Portugal. And that's been that mass tourism has been really helpful in a way of bolstering the economy and helping Portugal pay back its debt um, you know, to the EU. So there was a really big financial crisis in Portugal in 2011, and there's been a lot of really spectacular urban development, and a lot of buildings that were falling down and falling apart have been fixed up, you know, and a lot of international investment and changes in laws to facilitate international investment and visas and so forth. But, um, you know, along with many other cities in the world, um, Portugal is now, you know, there's a lot of Airbnb, there's a lot of... um, interest in sort of easy, fast tourism. Um, and 
they just built a new port, so a new cruise port in the base of Alfama, which is a traditional Faldo neighborhood in Lisbon. So I'm really interested in um, what's going to happen with Faldo and with um, with the city of Lisbon and also the city of Porto, but but specifically in relationship to Lisbon and some of its historic neighborhoods that have long had these very important associações recreativas or um, you know sporting associations that have fostered Fado and Fado learning and Fado audiences, but now they don't even have any members, hardly any members to pay the dues because like Alfama in Lisbon is now mostly Airbnbs and fancy hotels and really, you know, big auction places like Christie's and Sotheby's are in there selling these buildings. And the last grocery store officially closed this summer in Alfama. There are very few um, resources for residents. And so what concerns me about that, I mean, there are a lot more places to listen to Fatu, but most of the residents, and especially the working-class residents, they've had to move out. I mean, they, they have not. So I'm very interested in what happens to this neighborhood, which has so long been important for Fatu, when it no, is no, no longer livable or even a possibility for um you know, someone to live there um, and to have a social, you know, all those social networks that enabled Fado and were so important to Fado. What happens when those are all gone? So what happens when all those residents live on the other side of the river now, uh, outside of Lisbon, but they come back, um, you know, to compete in festivals in Lisbon or in the marshes or they come back to sing Fado, but, you know, they're kicked out of their neighborhood. So, how, you know, I'm interested in thinking about that. Absolutely. It would be very interesting to find out the, uh, the findings afterward. Um, alrighty, folks, we're going to uh, start to wrap our interview up. Uh, Professor Gray, we usually uh, like to ask uh, our guests towards the end of our interviews um, a fun question, and that is, if you could talk to anyone from history and ask them one question, who would you want to talk to, and what would you want to ask them if you, could, um, if you could meet anyone from history? Well... If it's okay with you, I'd like to put a little bit of a spin on this, and especially in relationship to the topic of this particular interview and this show, is that I would like to, and um, let's just say, I would. Li- I think I would like to invite Maria Teresa de Noronha, the really wonderful father singer, and also Alfredo Mercenaro, so two people we've spoken about today during this interview. And I really don't think I would have much to ask them. I would just really like to hear them sing. Absolutely. That's a great, uh, I would enjoy that as well. (laughs) Um, Alrighty. Uh, uh, Professor, thank you again for joining us and discussing uh, your book. If anyone is interested in purchasing uh, your book, how could they go about doing so? So they could either go, there are a few ways, they can either go to the, just the Duke University Press site. So this is a book that's with, published with um, really wonderful publisher and wonderful folks over there, Duke University Press. Um, they can also, of course, go to Amazon and easily find it there. Alrighty, wonderful. There you have it, folks. All right, Professor Gray, thank you so much again for, for uh, joining us for uh, today's interview. And uh, if you listen for the second half, well, I'll be playing uh, some Faldo music. Oh, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you again. Okay, goodbye. Bye-bye. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. Uh, Professor Ellen Gray from Dickinson College discussing her book, Faldo Resounding, Effect of Politics and Urban Life. Uh, like I said, we're going to play some uh, Faldo music uh, for our listeners out there. If you haven't heard it, uh, we're going to play some for you. So I figured since we mentioned um, Amalia Rodriguez, obviously one of the most popular um, Faldo singers out there, I figured we'd play one of her songs. It's... Uh, so here we go. There you have it, folks. Amalia Rodriguez, as we were just discussing with Professor Ellen Gray. Uh, Amalia Rodriguez was one of the biggest, uh, uh, when I say biggest, famous uh, Faldo singers. I mean, really uh, popularized it. And, um, you know, I think it was a 50-year career she had and really um, traveled internationally singing. And it's probably one of the most famous uh, Faldo singers, like we were saying, or Fadishta, like uh, we mentioned earlier. Uh, so we're going to be playing a little bit more Fado. I figured introducing it to uh, maybe some of our listeners who haven't heard any before. It's a Portuguese type of music. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll play a couple more songs, and then uh, it'll be it. It'll be 5 o'clock, and then we'll be at it again. Um, we're actually going to do a special edition of the Paul Sargiro Show again uh, Sunday, so we'll talk about that at the end of this show. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get more into uh, our music. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Yes, there you have it, folks. That was the two fathers we just played. Uh, the first one was Faldo Nosu by um, 
That's how Alfred Duarte uh, Jr., who is the son of the gentleman who just sang, who is Alfredo uh, Marcinheiro. Uh, both of them very popular. I mentioned earlier in the conversation with Professor Gray that I actually saw the grandson of Alfredo uh, actually perform in Rhode Island, which was uh, a pretty interesting experience. But again, we're going to play a couple more songs, and then uh, we'll start to wrap up. Uh, our interview, uh, our interview. We'll start to wrap up the show. So we have, uh, so the second hour, I told Professor Gray I played some, fa- I would play some Fadu. Um, though it, it made sense since the first conversation we had the, for the first hour was regarding her book that she wrote on Fadu uh, when her, her time in Lisbon and whatnot. So that was a great discussion we had. So we're going to continue on with uh, some other uh, Fadu singers or Fadishtas, if you will. Um, like I said, so if anyone's interested, I, Again, I always mention this, but if anyone's ever interested in a specific topic you want me to interview someone for, send me an email. Uh, it's at paulo, P-A-U-L-O, at WARRadio.com, and I, uh, I'll arrange everything for um, our listeners. If there's a specific topic or a thing, a pressing issue you think that's important that we should discuss, I'm always open to ideas as well as open to uh, individuals who want to come on and discuss uh, maybe something that's uh you know, uh, of importance to them. Again, we're going to do a special so, uh, show uh, Sunday, uh, this coming Sunday. It's going to be from 11.30 to 12.30, if that. Uh, I arrange an hour. We're going to have uh, Charlie Johnson Kiffon, who is the, the Atterborough High School student who arranged for uh, a petition he started online for um, uh, more adjustment counselors. Uh, he would like more adjustment counselors at Atterborough High School and sparked very, a lot of interest uh, via social media. Uh, his petition got a lot of attraction, a lot of attention. So we're going to have him in studio uh, this coming Sunday, tomorrow, obviously, right? For, uh, starting at 1130 until however long we take, an hour or so. And so that'll be live. And then we'll pro- we may play it again uh, another Saturday. For maybe for those who have didn't have a chance to hear it. But in any case, Charlie Johnson Kiff will be on. He'll be discussing, again, why he feels... I, I'm going to ask him about why he started the petition to begin with. And then we'll get more into details about what's going on at the school, what he hopes to see at the school, and whatnot. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll go back right into our music. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, folks. Welcome back to the Paul Girl Show again. We're, we're at the last fifteen minutes. I didn't. I didn't want to interrupt uh, the songs too much, just because one, who you know, I, I felt like maybe people wanted to uh, hear the music at least, and not so much my voice, <laughs> if you will. Uh, in any case, so the last fifteen minutes, just to kind of wrap things up again. Uh, Sunday, we're doing a special edition to the Paul Girl Show. We're going to be here eleven thirty to I have until twelve thirty, uh, basically reserved for us. We're going to be. I'm going to be talking with uh, Charlie Johnson Kiff, who is. Uh, the Attleboro High School student who started a petition uh, online to essentially get more adjustment counselors in the high school. So we're going to talk. I'm going to interview him. I'm going to ask him a couple questions. Why he want? Why initially? Why did this even come about? Why does he want this? You know. And we're going to. It's an important issue. So I wanted to give him a chance to uh, get his views out there, get the the, the name out there, and uh, his ideas so people could hear him. And then uh, you know we might. We might be able to play it again on another Saturday just in case someone missed the interview. So it'll be interesting. And uh, it's good to see, uh, obviously, a younger generation getting involved and wanting to speak out and whatnot. But in any case, so that'll be Sunday from 1130 to 1230. And then, again, uh, next Saturday we'll be back at it again with uh, the show, of course. And that'll be February 16th. Uh, this, the, the year is already flying by. I can't believe we're already almost in the middle of... Um, of February. It's flying by. But in any case, in recent news, of course, uh, Mayor Paul Hero asked the city council this week to authorize submission of a charter change to the state legislature that would impose term limits on the office of mayor. But it's already facing some opposition when at least one councilor opposed to the way he puts uh, that he wants to implement the change. As you guys remember, this was a big campaign platform that uh, Mayor Paul Hero uh, campaigned on. And he said, you know, if the you know, it also it also states if a city councilor finished an unexpired mayoral term, that person would be allowed to serve out the unexpired term in addition to an eight year limit. Again, that's the entire limit of it. It'd be eight years. This uh, this legislation that he wants to pass. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, comes about and how how it, uh, what the end result will be. So it'll be something we'll be following, and I'll be mentioning it as well. Um, 
you, you know, it's just, it, it's interesting. It, obviously, it's a campaign issue, so I mean, you know he was going to bring it up, so it's, it'll be interesting to see how, uh, what happens with the city council and the, the administration, see how everything goes about. So it's, um, it'll be interesting. In any case, we'll be following that, so don't worry about that. Uh, in other news, uh, well, in, in political news, of course, uh, Elizabeth Warren officially kicks off bid for White House. Senator Elizabeth Warren has made her presidential candidacy official, kicking off her bid for the White House at a rally in the working class town of Lawrence, Massachusetts. So it'll be, uh, t- uh, I think I think we're in double digits already for a Democratic candidate to uh, already announce they want to run for the presidency. I know a big one that was just recently out there was uh, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, so it'll be interesting. Uh, one thing that Cory Booker... It's going to be interesting to see. Is I think I, I want to say his slogan's almost like unite, unite uh, wants to unite as opposed to kind of going uh, and attack. Um, you know how people are I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. Uh, more an aggressive style towards an opponent. He's more of saying come together. So it'll be interesting to see if that slogan and that campaign style differentiates him among uh, the other Democratic candidates in the primary. But in any case, so that'll be uh, nice to see. Um, so we're going to do uh, one more song, and then, you know, if we have, obviously we're going to have time. So we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about more what's going on in the news. And I'll probably reiterate again with a special edition that we're going to have uh, Sunday from 1130 to 1230 and what that's going to be all about. So here's another uh, song um, kind of related to the father that we're singing. But this is uh, uh, George Forever, uh, and the uh, Portuguese titles, Os Olhos da Minha Mãe, which is The Eyes of My Mother. Alrighty, again, that was uh, Carminho, and the song of that was the title of that is Escrevei o teu nome no vento. Again, I hope everyone enjoyed uh, today's show or learned something. Again, it was Faldo. That was the music you were listening to, of course, a specific Portuguese genre. And we had uh, on on the air with us earlier today in the first hour, Professor Ellen Gray, who wrote the book uh, Faldo: Resounding Effect of Politics in Urban Life. Uh, gave a brief kind of we talked about the history of father what is it what it is today how it's changed different variations of it different singers or fadishes if you will in any case that's going to be uh that's going to be it for today's show I ho- again i hope you guys enjoyed it. i hope you guys learned something as always uh again we have um uh what do you call it we have uh, uh the email address uh paulo at wararadio.com you always can send us an email uh, let the show know uh, how we're doing, what we would like to hear, uh, what would you like to, if you have any specific topics you'd like us to discuss and have guests on, I'll be more than willing to to research and um, get a guest for uh, that specific topic. Or if you yourself would like to be a guest on the Paul Segura Show uh, one Saturday between 3 and 5, of course, when we're on, uh, you can. You just send, it, send me an email and uh, we'll figure out a topic, what... what Again, as long as it's with our goal of the our mission, which is to educate our community through interviews with professionals, and that's the ultimate goal of this show: is to just educate our community on specific topics. We do interviews, and sometimes when we don't have a guest, we'll do obviously the the local news, some national news, and we try to make it fun with this day in history kind of stuff every now and again. In any case, that's going to be it for today. Uh, again, t- uh, Sunday this uh, tomorrow, of course, from eleven thirty to twelve thirty. I will be on the air with um, Charlie Johnson Kiff, who is uh, a student at Attleboro High who started the petition for uh, adjustment counselors, an increased number of adjustment counselors at Attleboro High School, which has gained much attention uh, through the local media, uh, on the Sun Chronicle, as well as uh, through social media. Uh, Many people have signed it, and we will be discussing uh, his goal behind the petition, why he started it, and what he hopes uh, to come about it. So anyway, that's going to wrap it up for today. Again, I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend and enjoy this, enjoy this weather. It's pretty nice out. We're at, I say pretty nice, but it's 31 degrees out, but at least it's not raining and it's not snowing. Alrighty, folks. Again, thank you again. We'll be at it again next Saturday, three to five o'clock.